0: is folks <laughs> we left you just a little taste of the life-changing part of what is and what should never be live at royal albert hall it's led zeppelin it is maybe the most phenomenal iteration of that song that anybody knows who knows it, it but it's it certainly is just when they get to that part about 323 and you know of course a lot of us had mono uh, stereo, as opposed to stereo, back at the time. So when he clicks, you know, he comes through the left speaker and then the right speaker, and Jimmy Page is able to do that. It's just, it's just so phenomenal. And then John Bonham attacking the drums. It's just a beautiful thing. So, um, so anyway, uh, welcome back to MMA, BJJ, in life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco. Uh, it is a huge, huge day on the show we are having on. Uh, Kid uh, Nate Wilcox of BloodyElbow.com. All of you who are MMA fans know Kid Nate. He created Bloody Elbow. Um, He's been involved in uh, political uh, campaigns and strategies, online uh, strategies down in the state of Texas uh, for years. And he's just a brilliant mind. And when I found out that uh, Kid Nate was starting a podcast called dad rock which was going to be about rock history i said oh man i've got to get nate on um you've heard me talk about eugene s robinson quite a bit more than either probably nate or alexi but i'd like to have all three of them on uh, eventually uh but that spurned me on uh, the love of rock and roll that i needed to have uh nate on the show without question so today, um, we're going to get into it's a, a life episode, hashtag life, so MMA, BJJ, and life, hashtag life, and uh, we're going to get into some uh, rock history discussion, um, because f- uh, for me, it's fascinating to find out how we got here, who was it, or what persons was it that brought us to this time and place, and with regard to rock and roll, uh, the '60s, uh, you know, you know, beginning in the '50s was inspired by blues musicians, and then in the early '60s, a lot of uh, white musicians from the UK, inspired by that music, created new types of rock, along with of course the Beatles, which weren't really blues based, much more, I guess, what would come to be known as pop based. But we'll ask um, Nate some of those questions. Um, created rock and roll as we know it today, and I think. Um, I don't think it will ever be better than that, but we're going to ask Nate those questions and find out what he thinks about that. So, um, like I said, you know, when we started the show, and and I will get into some talk um, probably tomorrow um, about the past UFC, some UFC news, things like that. Um, You know, I'll review the uh, Kevin Lee, Michael Chiesa card a little bit and talk about what's coming up, but today it's going to be a life episode, so we're going to talk rock history, so those of you that love rock and roll, um, stay tuned, and coming up next will be KidNate of BloodyElbow.com, so sit tight and we'll be back with kidnate.
1: Baby, all this summer Every time I hear that metal saxophone I wanna rip it, rock it Really pop it Flip it, pop it, Davey it Every time I hear that metal saxophone I wanna rock, rock, rock
0: Goes, sounds you're uh, hearing were was introduced to me by our next guest, uh, a man who wears many hats, that of music, that of uh, politics, apparently history, and art also, as, I, as I'm reading, uh, a man of, uh, of great intellect in a lot of areas. And since I had never heard this song by Roy Montrell, um, I should have known that he was going to give me a song that I'd never heard that's really cool. Um, so I really expected no less, but uh, with that, without further ado, let me introduce our our next guest on the Life episode of MMA Jane Life, where we're going to be talking rock history. And the, our guest is none other than Kid Nate Wilcox of BloodyElbow.com. How are you, Kid?
2: I'm well, I'm well. I'm almost a 50-year-old kid, but I'm still clinging to it.
0: Yeah, you go for. Hey, I'm 50, so you know and Eugene is what five years older than you, or something.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's up there, but you know he doesn't call himself the kid anything, but you know.
0: <laughs> but he acts like a kid, right? He's still a lead <laughs> he still leads. You won't let me call him Gene.
2: I mean, you know, how immature can you get? Yeah. But, anyway. <laughs> yeah
0: so he's still doing all the kid things. He's you know uh, sparring with guys, and uh, he's doing. Uh, more jiu- Jitsu a week than my body can take. I mean I'm good for about two days a week, maybe three tops so anyway so so uh, it's a pleasure to have you on Nate and uh, one of the things that spurned this on that uh, the audience I already told them about was that I because uh, I actually introed you earlier is that I went on Twitter and saw that you have an upcoming podcast based about rock history called Dad Rock is that correct?
2: That is correct. That's the provisional title. Uh, I haven't come up with anything better, and uh, so it seems to be dad rock, yes.
0: That is really cool, because that is how the young people would refer to the music that we like.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. As soon as I heard that phrase, dad rock, and my kids adapted it immediately, and uh, they naturally hate my music, so... You know, uh, uh, I I thought, well, why not, you know, make it a badge of honor instead of a source of shame. I'm not ashamed of my dad rock.
0: But you know, uh, Nate, there are kids, I know young folks here in uh, my town, of Laguna Niguel, that do listen to their parents' music, inspired by their parents' music, just like I was. I mean, I listened to Fleetwood Mac because my mom did, or Carol King, or James Taylor, or whatever. I mean, is that, you've seen, have you run into kids that listen to classic rock?
2: Well, sure, and my kids do, too. Um, they, you know, just push back a little bit because I'm kind of overbearing with it. But, yeah, I mean, my two-year-old, when my son was two, he would get in the car and holler Maybelline, you know, like, <laughs> Chuck not Barry's Maybelline. And, uh, and my daughter loves Yellow Submarine. And, you know, so it's... Uh, a lot of rock history has pretty classic appeal and universal appeal, and, and uh, I think if kids are exposed to it, they will like some of it, you know? And if they're overexposed, like the time I got in a really morbid Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart obsession (laughs) until everybody in the family had enough, you know, then uh, then they don't like it so much. But that's, uh, you know, that's how the cookie crumbles, I guess.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, There are people that are over what I'm, uh, when I get stuck on something for about six or seven days and they're clearly over it and I'm not, and you have to like, okay, I got it talk myself down off that ledge. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> I,
0: I have to ask you an overarching question that is going to challenge um, your most broad thoughts about rock and roll. And um, I, I may have posed this to you on Twitter, but I want to do it for the audience. And it's something that I've wondered about for years. And Basically, it's when we look at the British invasion, we look at the 60s, we look at the giant groups of that era. I think there was a time in 69 when only one of the groups in the top 10, was it may have been Creedence, Clearwater Revival, were an American group. So my question is, what is it about that small island in the North Atlantic, known as the U.K., Um, that has produced so many great groups. What is it about their experience, maybe growing up, or their culture that has produced so much great music compared to a much larger country in ours or or others?
2: Well, um, I mean, that's a big question, and that's one i thought about a lot, and I don't have an answer, Um, but I've got some theories. And, and, uh, you know, one of my theories is that, uh, and it's not necessarily originally original to me but there was a big backlash in the states against rock and roll in the late 50s and you know some of it was luck i mean buddy holly died in a plane crash just because you know he got in a plane in a snowstorm with a pilot who didn't know how to use equipment and had to fly by sight and couldn't fly blind tried to fly anyway you know and chuck berry probably shouldn't have taken a 14 year old girl across state lines um (laughs) (laughs) You know, although that case is a little more... It's less black and white than it sounds. Black and white's kind of ironic. And the judge was definitely racist. I mean, so racist that even in the early 60s, you know, his first trial was thrown out because the judge was so racist, which you had to be pretty racist for that to happen at the time. But, you know, and Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, probably shouldn't have married a (laughs) 15-year-old cousin when he was married two times before, but nonetheless... The authorities came down on those guys like a ton of bricks. Alan Freed, the DJ, was run off the air You know when Frankie Lyman danced with a white girl on his TV show. They were accused of business practices that Dick Clark, for example, indulged in to a much greater extent, but he never got in trouble. I mean, he kind of changed his ways to get out of some of the more flagrant stuff, but there was definitely this big backlash against rock and roll in the late 50s, and the Beatles were pretty much rock and roll revivalists and interested in that over-the-top emotional expression. And because they were British and because they looked clean-cut. funny, yeah, they looked yeah. clean-cut. I mean, they were very sharp and very neat-looking uh, and well-groomed, but they also had you know, the weird haircuts, which struck american authority figures as comical more than anything else and so they sort of snuck in in an in a seemingly unthreatening way and and before the powers that could be could blink they had the rolling stones on ed sullivan <laughs> which was a whole different kettle of fish right. and so you know i think part of it was that british groups had a little more insulation from American authorities. I mean, as late, you know, like in 1968, the FBI was filming the MC5 playing at the Chicago Democratic Convention and, you know, had a surveillance file on the MC5. And I mean, so, you know, American bands had less latitude, maybe, with our our authorities. And and so that British bands were sort of insulated from that. And and I think another thing, and I also think that, the beatles um and i don't think that the beatles were like on a different level musically i think if you just look at their music there are plenty of musicians that are comparable to their achievement I, mean, I don't think there are many that are better but there are plenty that are comparable but if you look at them as a social phenomenon they were clearly on a different level and everywhere they went from when they were playing clubs in hamburg or liverpool to touring england to you know having hit records in england they would create an audience demand that was bigger than they could satisfy so in 1962 in liverpool there were literally hundreds of beat bands is what they called them Mm -hmm. and in london there were like none and so you know and then when they broke out nationally suddenly you know there were hundreds of beat bands thousands all over the country of england and so the they created this audience demand that then other musicians could step in and fill and so i think that was a factor as well i mean you know the rolling stones were already brian jones had already put the rolling stones together and they had a concept but they would not have been able to get away with their anti-showbiz shtick if the beatles hadn't come first and done all of the variety shows and all those things so i think i think you have to credit the beatles a lot And I think you have to credit the sort of cultural insulation that the British had. But it is really, you know, and also I think that it was, another factor was that they spoke English. So they spoke the same language. They sang the same language as American teenagers did, which was the big audience in the 60s and 70s. So there wasn't this language barrier to overcome, which has really, you know, hampered musicians from other countries in terms of, as long as the U.S. has been so culturally dominant, it's been very hard for people speaking other languages and singing in other languages to really break through to a mass audience in America. So I don't know. Those are a couple of my theories, but, you know, it's a very innately musical culture as well, with, especially with the Celtic culture, you know, the, the Scottish and the Irish. And all, all four of the Beatles had Irish blood and wow. some, some Scottish blood as well. And, and you know, I definitely think that's a factor. Brian Jones was, was Celtic, was Welsh. Um, you know, Van Morrison, obviously Irish, and but, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons are plenty musical as well so, um, you know, I, I don't know, you could go on forever but the the timing was right in the 60s for Britain to, and into the 70s and 80s for Britain to way overpunch its weight uh, as far as rock and roll.
0: And we, we should point out that the Beatles were the group your parents wanted you to listen to, and the Rolling Stones with their very sort of dark sexual themes were the the group that your parents didn't want you to listen to in England, right?
2: In the Um, 60s, yeah. yeah, But, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, when I was a little kid in the 70s, the Beatles had taken on this almost sinister Mm -hmm. aspect. There was the whole Charles Manson thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Helter Skelter, and there were all these rumors. And there was a big break. After Sgt. Pepper's, the Beatles no longer had the universal audience they had enjoyed up to that time. They become very much more music for young people Mm -hmm. and so post 60s and you know and by the early 70s i mean my first you know my older brothers were like too young for the beatles they thought the beatles were pretty square and so only my sister would listen to them Mm -hmm. and it was in the context you know she was listening to jim croce and and you know bread and stuff like and the beatles you know so Mm -hmm. it was seen as this pop thing but it was also sort of weird and sinister there was a whole bit about I heard there was a dead beetle, and then I heard there was an album cover that was that you know was a secret. And if you peeled it off, oh my God, there was a naked corpse on the cover, you know. Which they're <laughs> conflating all these things with the John Lennon Yoko ono, and a nude album cover and the butcher album cover where they were photographed holding you know butchered baby dolls and meat hunks <laughs> of meat, and, and then <laughs> slipped that out, you know. Capitol Records printed up hundreds of thousands of them before they realized maybe Oops. that's not such a good idea, and so. You know, by the time they they had taken on the sort of sinister connotation um, by the 70s that that still fascinates me. If you go on YouTube, there's some really weird channels uh, where people are still obsessing about the Paul is dead conspiracy theories and stuff. And I don't even think that they necessarily at this point actually believe paul mccartney died in a car wreck in 1966 and was replaced by a clone i mean imagine <laughs> finding a clone that was just as talented as paul mccartney that's no,
0: like the they,
2: they can't uh you know those theories can't ever uh answer but
0: and if you can you won't find a clone as talented as john lennon i think ever again but anyway go no ahead. no i mean yeah you know yeah.
2: nobody ever accused but you know there's nonetheless there are some really crazy youtube channels with hundreds of videos of beatles conspiracies and so i think that there is something i think that they were magical and i think that that magic had two aspects and not all of it was the positive friendly fun loving you know there was always more going on to the beatles than just being mop tops and i think culturally and i think the fact that you know two of them were basically killed by fans. Lennon obviously was gunned down by Mark David Chapman and and George Harrison endured the savage knife attack in his home that caused his lung cancer to reoccur because he was stabbed in the lungs dozens of times and he never recovered from that. So it's striking to me that the most beloved musical act of our lifetimes, half of them were murdered by fans. I mean, you know, that's uh, something I've, pondered at great length and so you know this show is just kind of like it's partly opportunity because i'm acquainted with ed ward who's the author of this book uh rock history history of rock and roll 1920 to 1963 and he's working on the second part he was the music historian on npr's fresh air for like 30 years he recently retired from that former writer for rolling stone and cream magazine and and uh so i've known him for a long time and just thought it would be really interesting to sit down with him dive deep into the book cuz you know he knows a lot more about rock and roll history than he could put into a book of a couple hundred pages and just ask him some of the things that are on my mind like why do i care about this stuff you know this is not necessarily going to be the most popular musical form i mean it's already not you know it's already been superseded is it going to have Lasting staying power. I don't know. Um, you know why do we care about this stuff? And I I wanted to ask him some questions like that, as well as prying all kinds of great stories about Phil Spector and Atlantic Records and Chuck Berry, and you know, out of this guy who's who's interviewed so many people and known so many people, and and uh, you know, so so it's just something I'm working on, and just uh, sort of a new medium. I've never we've done a lot of podcasts with Bloody Elbow, but they've always been quick and dirty. And this is one where it's actually recorded in a studio and we're editing it and and trying to do something really polished. Just, um, and Vox Media was kind enough to give me a, a pass to do this, you know, just for fun on the side. So I thought I would seize the moment.
0: I'm so excited for Dad Rock. And the answer now that you pose the question, I don't know why I'm so intrigued with it. I think because I feel like something was born And it lived and it still lives in the way that we spoke about on Twitter, that people still listen to the compositions of Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and and all of these greats from hundreds of years ago. So then why wouldn't rock, why wouldn't this music endure for a couple of hundred years? Because I believe great music that's great, that's innovative, that's, you know, I'm in – I'm very intrigued when someone does something that hasn't been done before and you've never heard something like that. And, and it, I believe it stands the test of time. So I believe that's why um, I'm interested in it. I, I, but why everybody else, it, you know, why classic rock is, is still on the radio, you know, is it because of us, because of people our age? Maybe. I, I don't know. Will it die when we die?
2: I mean, I think that I hope that the format dies. I mean, I would love to get a do-over on classic rock as a radio format because it's so limited. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, I love Leonard Skinner, you know, and Rush as much as the next guy, but it's so limited. To you know, it's it's sort of frustrating to me that you won't hear the Ramones say on classic rock, or if you do, it'd be like you know call mom something weird is going on like you know or the velvet underground like Mm -hmm. why do we have to limit ourselves to what was popular on the radio in the late 60s or early 70s and when you look into it it wasn't like the i mean the velvet underground you know wrote about some scandalous things but if you really look into what happened and why wasn't the velvet underground on the radio in the 60s it mostly came down to just a couple of small decisions like they recorded their first album in April of 66, and it doesn't come out until 1967. If that album had come out in 1966, and if MGM Records had put some hype and money behind it, I guarantee you some of those songs would have been played on the radio because they were great songs, and they were very much, I mean, they were obviously decades ahead of their time, but at the same time, the Velvet Underground and Nico was of a piece with what was going on in 1966 in a way they were not in 1967. So it's just this like, you know, very arbitrary sort of thing. Like the MC5, you know, that basically invented hard rock, heavy metal and punk rock all at once. They had a, a few screw ups. Like they decided to, you know, they get in a dispute with their record company, like Electra Records, or actually with a local record store chain And they print up a bunch of memos and, you know, screw this record store and not in that were you know, not using polite language, Mm -hmm. and put it on Electra stationery. And the record store calls Electra and is like, We're gonna pull all of your inventory off of our shelves. And this was the biggest retailer in the Midwest. So, you know, Electra drops them, their record was like number thirty on the charts with a bullet. And between that and getting a vicious review in Rolling Stone magazine and some backlash both on the east and west coast from like the arch hippie communities both in san francisco and new york and boom 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 the mc5 is done there you know that didn't have to happen and if and if i think if people had had a chance to hear the mc5 in 1968 and 69 they would have loved it and it would have been on classic rock And, and you know, groups like grand funk railroad and alice cooper kind of filled the commercial void that existed where mc5 was but they were not the mc5 and so you know i'd like to i'd like a shot to just rewrite that also classic rock is really racist like why is funkadelic not on classic rock radio every goddamn day good good point i mean you know it's so stuff like that i think the format has been mummified for decades and i'd like to see a complete do-over on that um
0: so you think that the Summer of Love may have sabotaged the the uh, prior group you were talking about? The Velvet not, Underground? The Velvet oh, Underground. And yeah. then, so luck, you think, plays a lot into this of why some groups became household names and some we don't know about.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you look at like the history of, of punk rock in the States, it's dogged by bad luck like that all the way from the Velvet Underground – to until nirvana you know and if you look at what was going on in the 80s like the bad brains who are this african-american hardcore group from dc that was just stunningly brilliant and incredible performers their big problem was their lead singer was a lunatic asshole. And so they self sabotaged themselves, you know, right out of a tour opening for U two in nineteen eighty seven. I oh, mean, you know, wow. like
0: Yeah, I remember that. That was when somebody Zydeco was opening for for U two, some Zydeco group.
2: Yeah. yeah I saw and that uh tour. Mm-hmm. and so, you know, um, had the bad brains who were you know six seven years ahead of of the red hot chili peppers and fishbone and 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 bands like that like had they been heard by that mass audience in the in the mid 80s they would have broken through you know i mean uh, it's just uh, over and over again things like that happen like black flag was on a label their album damaged was out on a label that was a subsidiary of mca the mca president saw it and said this is anti parent and wouldn't distribute it. And then they got embroiled in this three year lawsuit during which they couldn't even perform under their own name, like in a garage party. And so Yeah. And so, you know, you take the best hardcore punk band going in nineteen eighty one and you silence them for eighteen months, well duh, of course they're gonna have, you know, that's gonna have commercial consequences. So you know, over and over and over again, this happened to bands, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't to me. It wasn't so much a matter of Nirvana just breaking open the doors as much as it was a series of waves that hit higher and higher points on a dam until finally the dam was swamped. But it wasn't all Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. It was a lot of people building an underground audience over the course of decades, uh, uh, you know, a couple decades. I mean, from the time the Ramones couldn't get on radio, and they couldn't get on radio because Sid Vicious puked on people in England, and that had nothing <laughs> to do with the Ramones, you know? <laughs> right, right. And and But the the name punk rock got a bad association, and the Ramones were linked to that, and boom, the Ramones aren't on classic rock radio ever. And, you know, you hear Blitzkrieg bop at Yankee Stadium now. I mean, people love that stuff. This is classic rock, and, and it's a big part of American culture, and it drives me crazy to this day that it's still seen as somehow not in the Pantheon or not something that you can play on classic rock. When honestly I think most of the audience wouldn't even know the difference. I mean the sixty year olds probably would squawk, but there's fewer and fewer of them, you know, and and mm-hmm. classic rock is gonna have to adapt or die. I assume it's gonna die as a as a prominent radio format. But we'll see. I mean serious radio is awesome but they do the same thing even on their like 50s channel, which I found great, uh, and I learned a ton from listening to the 50s channel on Sirius Radio, but they're really playing stuff that was on the pop charts only. And yeah, like, they're not find out-
0: going afield a of those albums and going deep into the album, right? They're just playing the one or two hits. Right. The one or
2: two hits, and they're not playing stuff that was on the, say, the R and B charts mm-hmm. instead of the pop charts. And you know, they're not playing if it wasn't a hit at the time. I mean, you'll hear some stuff that wasn't a hit at the time, like Rubber Biscuit, which I don't know if you've heard that song, mm. but it's, it's by the a group called the Chips. I bet you have heard it, but but Google it okay. and and listen to it again. It's this crazy, fun, over the top R and B song that wasn't a hit at the time, but, um, I had heard uh and and i mean i I admittedly listen to more music than a lot of people but um you know it's not completely obscure but i don't think it's something you're going to find on the 50s channel on sirius and so i I think um i'd like to see a little bit more latitude given to the djs to play some more obscure stuff than than what they play at the moment but um anyway that that's sort of a, a a side note um so. Let me
0: stitch back to one thing you said about Nirvana. Do you draw a lineage, a line between them and like the Ramones? Like, are they basically, is is grunge like punk reinvented?
2: From the Nirvana side standpoint, absolutely. Like, okay. um, there was a scene in Seattle. There's a great book called Everybody Loves Our Town, which is an oral history of grunge and the Seattle scene in the ni- 80s and 90s. And there was always this, basically what grunge was was punkers trying to do metal. And people my age, I'm basically two years younger than Kurt Cobain, I mean, we all grew up on Led Zeppelin and ACDC and, and all that stuff. No matter how much some of us, when we got a little older, tried to disassociate. You know, like, oh, I'm a punk rocker. I'm not into that classic rock stuff. But you couldn't get you know, a whole lot of love out of your head. And if you were drunk and playing guitar real loud, you're going to be dropping some, you know, some Aerosmith riffs or some Led Zeppelin riffs and stuff like that. And you also had a thing like Black Flag that I mentioned before went from being a very like inventing hardcore punk, you know, short, fast, not metal. But within a couple of years, when they came back from their layoff, they were playing really slow, really heavy. They were listening to tons of Black Sabbath and that had a big influence on the Seattle scene. And and you know, you had all these punk rockers that grew their hair out and played detuned their guitars and played slow and low. And you know, so that was a big part of the grunge scene, but it always had this tension between commercial aspirations and punk purity or whatever. And so like Green River, which is like probably the first grunge band they, they started in 1985 and they included two-thirds of Pearl Jam and okay. and half of Mudhoney which Mudhoney never became a commercial band but they were a very very successful underground band I mean they moved hundreds of thousands of units at their peak on sub-pop records and right from the beginning In Green River, there's this split between the two guys who went on to form Mudhoney, who wanted to be a punk band, and one of them, Steve Turner, the guitarist, quit after the first EP of Green River because Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament started playing Aerosmith in the van, you know, and and telling Mark Arm he should take singing lessons and stuff. And the the punk rockers are just like, oh, fuck off. We're not doing that. Yeah, and so, you know, eventually Mark Arm quits and forms Mudhoney, and the other guys first form Mother Love Bone with Andrew Woods, who was definitely on the metal side of that equation, although he had the scene credibility, he his band Malfunction had been on the Seattle scene from as, as early as anybody, as early as Soundgarden, as early as Green River, but he was clearly, you know, he was obsessed with Freddie Mercury and, and is, is a uh, different... Uh, you know he's a he's a metal guy he's a rocker not not Ooh. so much a punker and, and you know he ODs tragically and they retool and find Eddie Vedder from San Diego, but then you get bands like Alice in Chains that were straight up metal guys they were not punk rockers they were metal guys it's Ooh. just that the synergy was perfect that they they literally it was these bands meeting in the middle where Alice in Chains was metal but they were gloomy and self-obsessed just like Nirvana was, you know? And so, and the scene exploded quickly, but a lot of opportunists sort of jumped in or, you know, if, if that's your perspective, I think all of it was pretty opportunistic. Even the sub pop records, the punk label, you know, they were looking to get to be big and make money and, and, and have fun and, and uh, sell records. And, and, um, you know, so, so there's, you know you get bands like Stone Temple Pilots that are associated with grunge but had nothing to do with Seattle and were really musical chameleons that were just jumping yeah. on the trend which there's yeah. a long great tradition of that i mean they were the talent they were talented you know and so they jumped into what was hot and they went on to put together a body of work that i think compares favorably with with any of the bands of their era but I don't it know, wasn't I, original I don't know that it, it was... I mean, none of it was original. That's the thing about grunge. Is, uh, I'm kind of down on grunge at the moment because um, it was pretty derivative of classic rock, and it basically led nowhere. I mean, the future of music was with hip-hop and with what Run-DMC and the Beastie Boys were doing around the same time in Public Enemy and groups like that, not so much with the rockers with their guitars and, and, and whiteness. And uh, so... You know, I don't know. And also, like, if you read Everybody Loves Our Town, it's just this endless litany. I mean, they're still overdosing. You know, Chris Cornell just OD'd or killed himself.
0: Uh, can, I, can I ask you something about that? Sure. Yeah. Do you find that, and, and we're totally, um, everybody just to excuse us, we're not trying to pretend like we know, but just to come up with a possible theory, do you believe that some of these folks like Chris Cornell that are super talented look at a Kurt Cobain and a Jimi Hendrix and a Janis Joplin and a Jim Morrison and a John Bonham, these people that died way too young and said, I can't, you know, I can't burn out, you know, I can't rust out. I have to, I have to end it now to be a musical legend. Like, do you think there's a pressure that they not fall into this lifestyle of, you know, like you and I have, where maybe there's a family and kids and growing old? Or do you think that pressure exists?
2: I don't. At, at this point, you would hope not, you know, I would I would have it was very sad that what happened to Chris Cornell and, and great sympathies to his family and friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I, And I don't I think it was just more routine than that. I, I I. think that that was sort of a factor with Kurt Cobain, but Kurt Cobain was very young and I think Cornell had moved on past that, but just couldn't get past the depression and the drug addiction, which are very serious diseases and and problems. And I think it's more a case of rock and roll not being the answer. Like, you know, like the musician's life has always been a really hard and basically bad one. I mean, you know, musicians were socially ostracized forever Mm -hmm. until they became superstars, and that might be something to go back to because it's just not, you know, I played in bands and, and, and stuff and, you know, dropped out of it partly because I just, you know, finally realized, you know, I'm not that talented. And also because I didn't want to hang out in bars all the time, you know, like being a musician devolved into a lot of heavy lifting and hanging out in bars before they open and after they close, which are not glamorous places to be, you know, bars with the lights on are just gross. And, uh, (laughs) and so, you know, that, that was something I've realized is that's not for me, you know, and, and. I think a lot of people in my generation, our generation, had this uh, this myth of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you can just transform your life, you know, and 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 really, it's it's got amazing music is magic, and it's got amazing transformative powers, but it can't save your life. It can't save your soul. It's it's just music. And can
0: we suspend disbelief? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, you can for the length of a concert yeah, or a yeah. album or a documentary or a joint or whatever. But, you know, <laughs> in the morning, I mean, I just I really feel terrible for Chris Cornell's family and his kids. Yeah. And, and, you know, and uh, I've I've lost friends to suicide and and I sympathize and I can't imagine the emotional pain they're going through. But it's also a pretty hostile act to all the people that survive you. And yeah. so. I've got a lot of anger at my suicidal, suicided friends, you know, like, I mean, I don't, it's a, I'm torn, you know, but it, but it, it, it hurts a lot of people when you kill yourself that way. I mean, you know, I think Courtney Cob, I mean, Frances Bean Cobain has a really healthy attitude about her dad. My dad was an asshole. He was a chicken shit. He ditched me, you know, and, and from her perspective, he absolutely was. And, and I, you know, I, I see his genes coming through in her when she's that iconoclastic about her own dad. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I mean, all of this is kind of uh, well, like the it's topic conjecture. Of, we we don't yeah, know what conjecture. they were
0: thinking and feeling.
2: Yeah, and it's also not on topic for my show, which stops in 1963. You know, mm-hmm. and we're literally talking about because I've really gotten fascinated with where did rock and roll come from, mm-hmm. and and and. I'd always, I was always pretty familiar. I, I was very lucky in that I had older brothers who were really into music, and I was exposed to a lot of stuff. For a kid growing up in Borger, Texas, for my first favorite record to be the New York Dolls cover of Stranded in the Jungle, that's pretty unique. You know, like, <laughs> wow, I don't know that one. I have to know that. Okay. Yeah, the New York Dolls were like the American glam band and one of the key progenitors of punk rock. And they they were junkies, and they dress up like women on their album covers so they didn't have a chance of breaking it in america
0: right but in england they they probably loved them
2: (laughs) well they 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 were they were liked in england but they didn't they didn't really get a chance to tour england enough to really have a big breakthrough there but they um they were put out on mercury records and their album came out at the same time as aerosmith's first album and my brother you know who's just a 15 year old rock and roller at the time reading cream magazine he came home one weekend with the the first aerosmith album and the first new york dolls album and they're both very comparable to him at that time they're both bands based on the rolling stones with a lead singer and a brunette guitar lead guitarist and who looked just like keith richards and you know they they there was a lot of similarities between Aerosmith and the New York Dolls. And one of them, one of those bands went on to massive fame and fortune, and another one burned out really quickly, largely because of heroin, um, you know, and, and and became, but they became like the Sex Pistols' favorite band, you know, and the Smiths' favorite band. And so they had this huge wow. musical influence. Um, and then they also... Poison based their entire look and career on the New York Dolls. Wow. So, you know, all those bands like Motley Crue and Poison and all those 80s hair metal bands were actually really heavily influenced by glam rock of the 70s. You know, I mean, like Quiet Riot's two hit singles were both songs by Slade, which was a huge That's glam right. rock band. You know, so um, these, I, I feel like sort of like talent will out and 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 great music will eventually become popular even if it takes a while. And so Glam Rock, like T-Rex had one minor hit in the States in the 70s, but he was a god in England. Like He was the Beatles in England in the early 70s. And David Bowie was right there with him and sort of broke through in America, but it wasn't until the 80s that David Bowie broke through, and then he was a totally different thing. He was New Wave, MTV David Bowie, not Glam Rock or David Bowie. But Glam Rock came out, came broke big in the States in the 80s. And it's not as good as, you know, Slade, Quiet Riot basically sucks, and, uh, and Slade is <laughs> great, or, you know, very good. And so, but the music got out there one way or another, and the look got out there, the whole androgyny. You know, it's so funny that something in 1973 of dudes putting on high heels and makeup freaked people out in 1973, although Kiss was watching them closely and adapted that. And and uh, and you know changed it a little bit and had massive success, but uh, you know in 1986 every football player in my high school was listening to Poison, you know, and it didn't <laughs> bat an eye that they all looked like prostitutes, you know, and yeah. and so uh, you know it's just funny what you know, but that was after Boy George and all this other stuff and David Bowie and we 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 sort of process that that middle america had gotten over the fear of androgyny or whatever that was so shocking in the 70s but
0: my recollection of bowie was that sick i think i was in sixth grade so i'm 50 so maybe i'm a year older than you and a kid told me i had gone to a new school and one of the boys there that befriended me uh when i went to his house it was all about david bowie there was nothing else but David Bowie, and I don't know how he got to that place. It must have been one of his parents, I can't remember. But he turned me on to David Bowie, and David Bowie was different than everybody else that that, that I knew of at, at the time.
2: Yeah, so. and that's kind of how word got around. I mean, we didn't have the internet. Like, I got into the Ramones in seventh grade because in, in our school, in my town, two elementary schools merged into one middle school so in seventh grade we were meeting all these kids from across town Mm -hmm. one of those kids that i became friends with had seen rock and roll high school on cable and had fallen in love with the ramones and so immediately we had a whole clique of 20 30 kids that were into the ramones in borger texas you know so cool (laughs) and uh you know so it was it was a a sort of fluky thing but you know it was a lot, word of mouth played a lot more of a role and it also you could get legends like I was talking about with the Beatles I mean you know all this misunderstanding and 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 rumor and games of telephone about the Beatles you would think people would know this stuff but people really don't you know and and people are still having some pretty silly debates about the Beatles you know like, like did what? George Martin write their music and oh. stuff like that that's easily disproven, but you know, I mean, the internet hasn't made people think any clearer.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> so. you know, we have Eddie Bravo and the Flat Earth people going around yes. that legitimately I hope that all of his affiliates in the various states don't actually believe the earth is flat. I mean, it's just such <laughs> I, I I I tried to listen to that episode with he, Brendan Schaub, Joe Rogan, and I don't remember who the other person was. Uh, talking about if the Earth being flat, and it's just ridiculous. And even, even Joe Rogan was willing to entertain that the moon landing didn't happen.
2: Which <laughs> he later retracted that, didn't he? No, didn't he? he was
0: saying, "Wait, look at that post-mission uh, interview with the three uh, Apollo Eleven astronauts. Look how weird Neil Armstrong's acting." It's like Joe, if you read up and find out a little bit about Neil Armstrong, he is a very shy, very awkward kind of person, not great at public speaking, and now he's there in front of an entire auditorium of international press trying to do a play-by-play of what happened and it's not it's very difficult for him. It was like a 3 2 or 3 hour press conference.
2: Yeah, Ridiculous and it goes to, to show you like how if you approach things with this sort of magical thinking, and want to look at the source material and search it for clues that are like you know if you're imparting meaning to coincidences, it's like the whole Alex Jones things. Everything gets really weird and fractal if you fractal if you stare at it long enough, mm-hmm. you know. And it's just like the Kennedy assassination. If you dive into that, it's an endless hairball. I mean, anything that you investigate at that depth is going to just get reach a point where it stops becoming more explicable and it gets weirder and weirder because, you know, the world is immensely complicated and there's no way to know and explain every action. You know, if you're looking at, say, several hundred people in November 1963, at this point you can't explain everything that was going on. They're not alive to tell us and they didn't write down what they were doing every moment of the day and, and all kinds of weird coincidences come into play And so, you know, Occam's Razor is a great – is your friend. The Mm -hmm. simplest answer is probably, uh, you know, probably closer to the truth than some really complicated thing. But, you know, we are way uh, (laughs) – Far (laughs) afield from rock and roll. I know, yeah. We can't go
0: off on the Eddie Bravo train because once you walk off that cliff, uh, there's no rope that's suspending you.
2: Yeah. Um, Let me ask
0: you this, Nate. I want to find out – um and i asked you about this as well on uh, twitter what is your mount rushmore of most influential groups um in rock well, history
2: i mean or you know of- i'd listen to too much stuff to re- i'm not really good at like here's a list of my favorite things because i just i'm into too many things and i don't and I don't necessarily believe in objective criticism, so I don't feel like it's my place to say these are the best, you know, no, bands. But I do think object. But yeah, you you, you yeah. framed the question pretty well. So yeah. I mean, influential. I mean, obviously the Beatles. We already talked about like mm-hmm. broke that barrier between they they killed old showbiz essentially. Um, but the Beatles are an odd band because they're really not that influential. There haven't been that many bands. Directly influenced by the Beatles, their harmonies are way more complicated. They use a lot more chords uh, than most rock and roll bands, and and rock bands stopped singing harmony basically shortly after them. And so the Stones, the Rolling Stones, are much more influential on the rest of rock history with limited harmonies, heavier guitars, you know, one singer and a band, and lots of three chord songs. Um, so the Rolling Stones, I think, are immensely influential on every rock band that followed and you know but i mean obviously hendrix is is way influential on all metal and led Zeppelin is you know wrote the book on metal and black sabbath um you know and then on the Prague side you know yes and and
1: deep purple and
2: bands like that have had you know rock critics have tried to make them go away forever but kids still listen to that stuff you know i saw some kid on twitter this 20 something putting together a list of you know some of his favorite albums he put out like 80 album covers on twitter and there was tons of prog rock in there and you know like radiohead is nothing but prog rock it's like this hideous cross between you two and pink floyd and then they say they hate prog rock and i'm like give me a break you (laughs) assholes (laughs) you are prog rock you know and so i mean uh you know I, I mean you know stuff that's influential i mean james brown is so influential oh, we can't man. fathom it i mean every hip-hop group ever is basically built off the beats uh of james brown and um you know so i would i would Beatles, stones james brown led zeppelin would be kind of the the troika and then the kinks like I mean, almost all punk rock comes out of You Really Got Me. and, and uh, <laughs> that's and that, true. You know, and, and you know, and, uh, I mean, I could uh, you could go on forever. The Dead uh, were enormously influential with all those jam bands that popped up like Cancer in the 90s. I mean, you know, so, so, you know, The Dead. I mean, I remember that was like, I was 24 or something. I was working at the phone company. I was a Kelly girl. I was a temp.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Pushing a cart to the salespeople, giving them their weekly sales figures every day, and or their daily sales figures, and and I remember meeting some girls are like just a couple years younger than me, but they were into all this stuff, like this string cheese incident and fish and all this shit, and Dave Matthews, and and that was the first time I remembered, whoa, the kids are into something that. I don't know about, and I hate. <laughs> you know? but, but it was a huge, enduring thing. I mean, there's a whole generation of kids that heard The Grateful Dead when they had the Touch of Grey hit single,
1: mm-hmm.
2: went to see a dead show, or or went to see a dead imitator, like Fish, a few years later, and and that was, you know, I've come, I've turned around on the dead. I've uh, You know, like, I don't, I just, at this point, I just listen to music and sort of, like, listen to it as whether or not it's interesting to me i don't like once you're outside of you know when you're a teenager it's like this is my music this is who i am you can get really passionate about you know i'm into black flag screw you pansy you're into rem you know and like but now you have
0: no boundaries
2: yeah i don't care and so like you know one of the most fun things musically but but at the same time i like to really i like to hear music like i can understand and so i'm I stopped listening to new music like in the early 90s cuz I was in a band and I didn't want to it just I just wanted to focus on the things that I thought were my influences for my band, you know? And I didn't want to hear new music. So after trend jumping all through the 80s and you know, oh, this is the hot new band. I've got to buy all their stuff. And then, you know, a few years later I'd be like, "Man, that kind of sucked." You know, <laughs> at the end of the 90s, I kind of went back, and it was great, because I was like, well, what were the big bands, you know? And I was like, oh, Outcast has, like, six great records, you know? Or or, uh, Stereolab, which is this French group I got into. Boom, you know, all these great records, the, the Magnetic Fields, you know? Like, you could discover somebody that's already sort of been vetted and stood the test of time to some ex- extent. And it's not just the flavor of the week, but it's actually, you know, has a body of work. And that's fun, but that means i'm completely oblivious to all this stuff you know drums and bass and jungle and all these kinds of edm music they i can hear them and sometimes enjoy it or be fascinated with it but i don't understand it and so for me it's like much more exciting to like find an unreleased david ruffin album from motown in the early 70s because i can pop that baby in and it's songs i've never heard before and i can also immediately understand it at a depth you know cuz I like I like to listen to music intensely and when I'm listening to music from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 50s it's like I know immediately. Oh, this is a doo up progression, and oh, I bet this—you know—this is from New York in the fifties. I bet that's King Curtis on sax, or oh, this is a Phil Spector record from the sixties. I wonder if that's Carol Kaye on bass, you know? And I listen for her trademark pick, you know, like wow. ah, that is Carol Kaye, and so I can enjoy it to a real depth that I can't enjoy, you know, Skrillex or whatever that shit is. Like I. I you know, I, I, I mean, and I'm sure it's great for the kids or whatever. It's just, it doesn't mean anything to me. And I want to under I want underst- to be able to dive in immediately and understand what I'm listening to. But I'm, but you know, like one of the most fun things I've done in the last couple of years was I made this massive playlist on Google Play music of like 700 songs from 1963. And my criteria was basically like, was it on the charts Oh, you know, was it on the pop charts in the U.S. or England? Was it on the pop charts in France? Was it was it on the R&B charts? Was it on the country charts? Was it on the easy listening charts? Was it, you know, is it on ten? Is it on best of lists from that year? So I put in a lot of jazz album tracks and folk album tracks and stuff, and I just made this massive playlist of like everything from 1963 that I could find that I thought was significant, and. It was so much fun, and literally there were like two or three songs on there that I didn't like, and those became like special favorites because they were so bad it was fascinating, you know? Like, (laughs) what is this shit, you know? So you uh,
0: can do the same for other years. You can take another year and just... It's a ton
2: of work, but but I found it was a really... I mean, basically it was an elaborate exercise in making the Stones and the Beatles new because I've listened to that shit into the ground. But when you hear, I Want to Hold Your Hand... Next in something like the context of 1963, when you hear "I want to hold your hand," next to like whatever Dion was putting out that year, or Ricky Nelson, or uh, you know Phil Spector's various groups, the Shirelles, and and stuff like that, "I want to hold your hand" sounds like Led Zeppelin. It stands I mean, out, right? Oh. Boom, you know, and yeah. then the Rolling Stones, their you know uh, their cover of "I Want to Be Your Man," which is a Beatles song, with Brian Jones on this just loud, distorted slide guitar. It sounds like Black Flag, and so that has been really fun. But it's also, I also appreciate a lot of the really saccharine pop stuff that was going on. I mean, you know, like if you get into music, like I, I have a, like sort of an informal music class I do every Thursday with this family friend of ours who's like in his seventies. And he he sang opera in high school, and he he took a lot of music classes, and you know he went to Harvard and took he took piano composition classes there and stuff. And he was like a big ragtime player in the '70s wow. in the ragtime revival. And so we'll sit around every week, and he basically tuned out of rock history for various reasons while it was happening. But he loves the Beatles, and so he likes you know I'll play him all this classic rock that he's really never paid attention to, and he'll play me like these Gershwin songs and explain the chord structures like Gershwin's songs have these crazy chords but like he's he'll play them and be like you know in order to play this by memory i had to sit down and figure out when when he plays these bizarre chords what's he really doing and it turns out that he's frequently doing something simple he's just substituting fancy chords you know he's like this is really just a 1 4 5 progression but he threw in these 9ths and seconds to make it interesting And so to me, that's just like fascinating. I'm learning so much, you know, and and like I've read like every book on the Beatles music theory that's been written. And and that's way over my head because I'm not – I never took any music theory or anything. But in the course of doing that, I've learned a lot more about music theory because their chords are really complicated. And so that gave me kind of an entree to now – You know, when he's explaining Gershwin or Debussy or something like that, then it's like, oh wow, you know, this this makes a lot more sense. And so when I listen to somebody like Burt Bacharach, that growing up I would have been, that's not rock and roll, that's easy listening. But if you listen to like the songs Bacharach wrote for Dionne Warwick in the early '60s, you know, like, does anybody know the way to San Jose? I mean, I grew up, that's just a pop song. I like it. And but when you listen to it,
0: there's a lot more there.
2: Yeah, it's this, ma- like, Bacharach was right up there with Brian Wilson and, and Lennon McCartney and that he was one of the few songwriters, pop songwriters of the 60s, that was actually musically sophisticated and, 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 you know, using all these jazz chords and these long phrases and weird time signatures, but he's playing with the same session guys that, like, Atlantic Records is using for the Drifters. So you've got all these... Basically, jazz musicians who are playing rock and roll as their day job during the day,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and just and doing it well. It's not like that. You know, sometimes you get jazz musicians who can't hang in a rock context. But these are the guys who like invented rock and roll. Like mm-hmm. you know, like the Motown band was the same thing. That what they wanted to do was play jazz, but in the daytime they'd go to work for Barry Gordy and they'd you know play Smokey Robinson's songs, and they might be thinking, "Oh, this is corny three chord bullshit," <laughs>
0: but. We'll play the complex stuff tonight.
2: <laughs> yeah, but they brought a lot of their creativity to the table, and it was great music. It was it was simple pop music, but it was great. And you get this, you know, band of basically musical ninjas and assassins. You know, who, you know, I mean, like there's st- if you watch the Funk Brothers documentary, "Standing in the Shadows of Motown," they'll talk about how like somebody would step on a creaky board in the studio, and mm-hmm. the bass player would just call out E flat. Like, he would know his ears were so perfect, like, he could, you know, any sound you made, he could tell you what note that was, wow. you know? and And stuff like that. Or, like, the joke was, you know, that if a fly landed on his sheet music, he'd play it, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know like, just such a great sight reader, you know? And so I uh, that aspect of something like Burt Bacharach of thinking, wow, this is the same guys who played on all these killer rock and roll tracks and and this drumming is actually pretty funky, and and that's a cool bass line, and then and then they're playing these weird Burt Bacharach chords, and so something like that is a lot of fun to me. And then the whole, you know, Matt, did you watch Mad Men?
0: Um, not much, a little bit of a couple of seasons, but uh, I know that was the thing on American AMC channel, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so
2: I've I that was a really fun show for me because I've been fascinated with that whole Doris Day, Rock Hudson era for a long time mm-hmm. and uh, and and the baby boomers like look at that as something you know oh we killed that era and we're glad but i'll oh, yeah. go back and look at it and it's like i remember seeing doris day movies on tnt in the 80s and being like wow this is dirty you know like <laughs> <laughs> wow she's she's a single young girl and Cary grant's trying to take her away for the weekend and we know what he wants you know and like at the time that was seen as like sort of corny but to me, it was like, wow, this is actually, you know, I'm blushing, you know, like, uh, I'm is uncomfortable. Is that the blushing.
0: same era as, like, Breakfast at Tiffany's? Because I recently yeah. watched yeah. that and thought it was fascinating.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I think Mad Men did a good job of sort of explaining why that era had to go. Like, because there just wasn't a place for women who wanted to work and be independent. And, and there wasn't a place for African Americans and stuff like that. And there wasn't a place for free thinking. But at the same time... It was a really interesting era. I mean, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis and Vegas and you know uh, Technicolor and 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 it, so aesthetically, I'm really fascinated with a lot of that stuff. And so it was really fun, you know. T- like 1963 was just a great year to do that because you get like the Beatles exploding in England and you get Motown perfecting their sound and you get Phil Spector at the absolute peak of his powers and but you also get all this stuff you know that you think of as more like 50s but it's actually like there was this era of 58 to 63 that we think of as the 50s you know if you listen to 50s on 5 on Sirius radio half the shit is from 1960 to 1963 <laughs> you know so uh, the, you know so it's just sort of fascinating like so much stuff was happening and and, and you know i get fascinated with the idea of like I've spent so many hours of my life obsessing about rock musicians and martial artists and gangsters and porn stars. And I'm like, why am I interested in these garbage people that that are not, these are not good role models, you know, and these are people, I'm not going to be a hitman. Why do I care? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not talented enough to be a musician. Why do I care about Jimmy Page so much? And I finally rationalized it by saying that I'm interested in, in fields where talent will out like hmm. if somebody has enough musical talent and they get involved in the music in mu- music professionally they're going to make an impact even if they're from liverpool you know the middle of nowhere and, if and you,
0: i just want to interrupt for one second i remember you said earlier about some of the musicians careers who were destroyed by sort of underage girls and jimmy page is one who slipped right buy that with his
2: timing was perfect and that's you know one of my fascinations with jimmy page is like you know a lot of people are down on him because he stole a lot of songwriting credits and he knew better and that is definitely a real bad thing and and it cost a lot of people you know willie dixon had to sue him and willie dixon and his family needed that money and they and willie dixon wrote those songs that jimmy page and robert plant were putting their names on but at the same time oh yeah Led Zeppelin's been sued over and over again. Even the chord progression of "Stairway to Heaven," I think they won that case. Yes, but but it's it's pretty clear that they did get that chord progression from Spirit. You know, I I don't know that they had that Spirit necessarily had a case to claim songwriting credits, but like Jake Holmes did because he literally wrote "Dazed and Confused" music and words and put it on an album and copyrighted it a year before Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, you cannot get a more flagrant case. And he, for whatever reason, didn't bother to sue them until just a few years ago, you know. And so, you know, I understand why people are down on Led Zeppelin for being plagiarist, but at the same time, I really admire them because their their sound, their arrangements were new. I mean, you know, you hear Muddy Waters doing... uh, you shook me and then you listen to led zeppelin doing it and it's totally different mm-hmm. um, even though it's the same song but their arrangement just the fact of john bonham on drums john paul jones on bass and jimmy page on guitar and robert on vocals i mean all four of them were so powerful as individuals that it was this explosion and they did go on to make you know their later albums are. Or a higher percentage of completely original or more original things. And really, honestly, n- no music is completely original, right? Like, right. Yeah. It- Beatles were big plagiarists too, but like their era, their timing was so perfect because Jimmy Page had been involved in the music biz. You know, he was in a skiffle band at the same time as John Lennon was. And then he was the top session guitar player in England in the sixties. There's a great documentary about him and Jack White and the edge. I oh really- yes. Uh, yeah. It
0: might get loud.
2: Yeah, and Which so, brings
0: me to a question I'm going to ask you after this about that, yeah. that, that documentary. Go ahead, please. Okay,
2: but so his timing was just perfect in that he watched all these British musicians get ripped off. And with the exception of Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five, who was a business genius, they all did, Jimmy Page watched the mistakes these guys made and made sure he didn't make them. And so if you've read about the Stones or the Beatles getting ripped off, it's really fun to read about led zeppelin playing boston garden and when the mafia comes to steal the gate money which is what they always did you know they would you had to pay off the mob well jimmy page had such an army of goons with richard cole and company and peter grant,
1: peter grant
2: yeah. that they took they took the the mafia capo or whatever that showed up to collect the money they took him in the bus and fucked him up I mean, how that? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they could have lived in Boston and screwed with the mafia that way. But on that day <laughs> in that place in their bus, their they did show. It. Yeah. And and so, you know, so in that sense, yeah, go Jimmy Page. But then as far as the pedophilia stuff, you know, that was just a function of that era. And you had this sexual revolution that built momentum all through the 50s and 60s. And by the early 70s, it was like anything goes. But you hadn't had any of the kind of backlash or – I mean it was like it was like a, a whole new world of people who'd never – I mean be- because of antibiotics and it was before AIDS, but it's post-syphilis. Like things like syphilis kept people from getting too kinky in, in years past and birth control. But once you had the pill and you had penicillin, then it seemed like there was no physical – negative consequences to promiscuity as it turns out they were wrong with aids coming you know right Right. corner but also you broke like they threw out all the old rules and a lot of the old rules were outdated but some of them like fucking little kids were not (laughs) like
0: (laughs) (laughs) like jimmy page calling the modeling agency and saying yeah that girl in the ad um yeah oh she's only 16 oh yeah have her come down the club we're gonna be playing yeah
2: Like sixteen, I mean, we're talking twelve-year-olds. Like, oh wow, I didn't know. L.A. scene, okay. A big part of the L.A. scene in the early seventies was literally twelve and thirteen-year-old girls who were partying with the bands and all that came with it. And you know, I think that we are currently living in a very judgmental era, especially judging people in the past and not wanting to cut people slack for, well, those were the standards of their time,
0: of the, the era time. Sure. Yeah. Of and
2: so I think I, I wouldn't call Jimmy page a pedophile cause he wasn't, I mean, that's a technical term. It means literally you're attracted to prepubescent children. He was attracted to pubescent girls and yeah. that's different. I mean, and state of uh, age of consent laws are somewhat arbitrary. Like Japan didn't have an age of consent law until like the early nineties. And so, you know, and you know, we, there were, many states had an age of consent of, like, 14.
0: Uh, 16 in the UK currently, I believe. Yeah.
2: And so, you know, like, historically, when they first formulated age of consent laws, the thinking was puberty plus a year. And so now we've got this sort of hard line of 18 is the age of consent and adulthood, but that really has more to do with, like, federal pornography laws than it has to do with actually taking a common-sense look at when are people ready for sex? And from my experience, people are ready for sex at very. Di- I wasn't ready for sex at twenty-five. I mean, I was having it, but it was a disaster, you know. Like, and, and uh, you know, I was a complete asshole to women until I was at least thirty-four. You know, well, you're and, in a
0: band. I mean,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't when, when I was in a band. I got no play for that. Oh, okay. It was when I started making money in the corporate office that I was suddenly getting getting play, um, and I and I totally mishandled it. You know, and I think I think it's crazy. I mean, this is way off topic. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in this world where a 17-year-old girl is sexually off limits, but then on her 18th birthday, she can go to San Fernando and make porn or dance in a strip club. And it's kind of like, it doesn't that's kind of like pitching people in at the deep end here, you know? Like, right. Uh, and so, you know, as, anyway, so, so I think when you read about Jimmy Page or David Bowie or Iggy Pop or any of these guys in that era having sex with 12-year-olds, Yes, there was a lot of skanky exploitation going on, and we should condemn that, mostly with a mind to not doing it now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but there was also – that was what was happening then, and a lot of those women who experienced that were like, yeah, I slept with David Bowie when I was 13, and it was awesome, and I'm so happy I did it. And so I think you have to credit their lived experience as well. Um you know, I'm not saying I want to change the age of consent. I've got kids. I don't want any grown ups creeping around them, you know, and and I but and I think people that are our age that are Gen X know what I mean when I say when we were kids it was literally open season on kids. And you know, and then you have this enormous backlash to now you've got high school kids going looking at hardcore prison time and being on the sex registry list because <laughs> they took a picture of their girlfriend's tits like yeah. i think you know i think we we're swinging wildly between extremes and hopefully we can find you know a more sane middle ground at some point but i i, I think sex will always make people crazy but anyway we're way off the music so uh,
0: <laughs> let me ask this. you one more about it might get loud that i'm curious about um and i really want to get your take on on this at the end of that um movie they play together that song from the band is it take a load off mary right
2: yeah yeah the weight
0: and and is that what it's called okay and i'm curious there were so many uh members of groups that called the band an influence and spoke of them with such reverence people like david crosby and on and on so i'm curious if you uh, find a connection with that why they were so revered that that group the band
2: well, I mean, you know, the band's never been a special favorite of mine. Um Nor mine. And and you know, like my thinking on them was like you hear about what great musicians they are and what a great guitar player Robbie Robertson is, then you buy the Big Pink or their their self titled album and it's like, I don't hear any guitars. You know? It's mm-hmm. like it's kinda like my reaction to Bruce Springsteen in the eighties, I see the telecaster, I don't hear the guitar. Here- <laughs> You know, like, and so, so but true. I was coming at it from a very, you know, I was in a band that was all about rock guitars. And so I was very much narrowing my aesthetic to things that like ZZ Top or where's my
0: you know, Billy Gibbons. Okay.
2: Yeah. And so at this point that I don't have an aesthetic agenda and that I've heard a lot more, like um, I understand the band and their place in time much better and like they were essentially bob dylan's band at a time when bob dylan was basically elvis and so they and and dylan had this car bike rack motorcycle rack and stopped playing for a couple years and never really became never went back to being a full-time rock star like he had been in 65 and 66 and so the band kind of took that mantle and they did the basement tapes with Bob Dylan, which wasn't released at the time, but they sat down with Bob Dylan while he was recovering from his motorcycle wreck and just recorded literally hundreds of songs, which have come out on CD in the past couple of years and are awesome. And they, in the, in the pr- pr- course of that, they went from being this down and dirty R&B Toronto bar band to being this, like inventing Americana music. And so, for people like Eric Clapton, it was this huge breath of fresh air. Like Eric Clapton had kind of gotten himself into a cul de sac with cream of playing loud and playing solos and not listening to each other. And Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker are both soloing at the same time as I am. And nobody's, you know, it's all happening at 120 decibels. And so, to hear some guys that are turning it down and really listening to each other, and it's about the interplay of the group. You know and also some some really great singing and, and songwriting so yeah I get that and and you know bands like Wilco and Uncle Tupelo like entire genres are, are built around what the band did I don't necessarily like that stuff that much but I recognize like I, I worked with a guy who's you know 10 20, 15 years younger than me in an office a few years ago and he loved the band you know and this is like some guy in his 20s in 2009 who's way into 70s music and Totally different 70s music than I was into. Like, he had never really heard ACDC. And for somebody my age, it's like, how do you not hear ACDC? <laughs> it's the like, an- you know? anthem. <laughs> it's yeah. like the national anthem. <laughs> but just within a few years, it was not anymore, you know? And, and for kids of that age, it seems like the band is really a big deal. So it seems really clear that their music has lasted. And also, if you listen to the live tapes of Dylan and the band in England, you can hear that Robbie Robertson is this crazy, nasty guitar player. And if you listen to the stuff he did with Robbie Hawkins, Ronnie Hawkins, in the early 60s, one of my Stones books, uh, this guy who lived with the Stones, Jimmy Felch, uh, the, uh, who, you know, is this big part of Stones legend because he was disgusting and wore his underwear on his head and spit on people and stuff. And he was... <laughs> This great memoir of living with Mick and Keith and Brian Jones, and he talks about, like, he lived with them from the period when they were a club band until they broke in 1963, you know, and was friends with them up to 65. And so it's this great memoir of the early stones. And he talks about early on, one day they had been to a radio station, and Brian Jones was like a compulsive thief, and he had come home with this pile of records he had swiped from the radio station. (laughs) And they go through. And, he, the, you know, they listen to all this stuff and figure out what it is. And they find this record by Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, a cover by Diddley's Who Do You Love, and they'd never heard of Ronnie Hawkins, and it was the last one they put on. And it's this loud, distorted, feedback-soaked song. And Brian Jones and Keith Richards were just like, it was glued to their turntable for months. <laughs> and, and I found that song, and it is way ahead of its time. And, and I mean, Robbie Robertson, like as a youngster as a 22 year old had no restraint and is just ripping it all the way through the record so the guys the band has real rock and roll credibility to me and then when they chose to do a more mellow thing it was a choice it wasn't because they couldn't rock it was because they had done that
0: you know they didn't want to keep regurgitating the same material
2: yeah and, and 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 you know, like if there's a great documentary about Bob Dylan uh, that Martin Scorsese did called No Direction Home that really explains, I mean, Bob Dylan was on the verge of getting assassinated for going from folk to rock. And I mean, they were playing <laughs> sold out shows where people paid what for the time was big money to come and boo, you know? Wow. And, and I mean, it was like this in, insanely intense experience. And Bob Dylan is doing so much meth. He weighs about nine pounds and is never sleeping, you know, and writing all these psychedelic songs and stuff. And so it's this, they lived through this real crucible and real ordeal of being rock stars, you know, They were absolutely on the cutting edge of rock and roll at the time when rock and roll, when rock music was being invented as a, as a thing. Like, you know, rock critics talk about ro- rock music as a different thing than rock and roll. Rock and roll is like Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry, and ro- rock is what emerges with... The stones and the beatles the mature beatles like revolver and sergeant <clears throat> and Be- beach boys pet sounds and bob dylan and and you know there was this this year 1966 where it seemed like anything was possible and all these sound all these people were coming from all these different places and doing comparable things you know and so uh, you know mad respect to the band i, I just read robbie robertson's autobiography and it's it's really interesting, although the rest of the guys in the band all think he's a complete asshole. But <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Oh, go figure. I mean, we could go into the police and have yeah. any other bands that are that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, Nate. Um, we've kept you uh, for uh, o- over an hour, and what's interesting about uh, when you know it's a great uh, – uh, conversation and interview is that I have more questions now than what I started with um, because you've made me think about so many things that uh, I hadn't even thought of um, that um, I think it's going to have to, I'm going to have to have you on again after uh, the launch of dad rock. Cool.
2: Um, looking forward to it. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, dad rocks going to be 10 episodes each one an hour long. There's going to be a bonus 90-minute version that for subscribers, um, and it's just me and Ed Ward. And you know, if you think I know rock and roll history, like Ed Ward has been writing about rock and roll professionally since the early '70s, the NPR music historian for 30 years, he's met most of these people, interviewed them. Uh, so it's just like me tapping into a a mainline of rock and roll knowledge. So it's a server. Like tapping
0: into the server of... Exactly. That's getting the the Russians. Yeah. um, (laughs) It's all uh,
2: Putin's fault. Vladimir Putin, of course, is the executive producer of the show. So I forgot.
0: For Vox Media, it's Vladimir Putin is producing the show, uh, and Sean Spicer, I think, is going to be your publicist. But um, but anyway, uh, so I definitely want to, uh, after that, I, I have... A whole bunch of questions that I that I didn't get to. Plus, now I have new ones based on what I learned from you today. So, um, so I want to have you back on, but I do also sure. want to mention uh, to folks that um, if I did it on BloodyElbow.com, is Alexi Odd. And uh, Eugene S. Robinson, who is hilarious. And if you haven't heard Eugene's uh, UFC 209 episode, post fight episode, to me, Nate, that is Hall of Fame worthy podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's he's had some where, uh, you know, you listen to Knuckle Up for 60 Minutes and it's like, wow, that was like an extemporaneous speech. Like, that was a beautiful monologue, you know, that could be like it's a, a spoken word
0: album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I'm like I've listened to it more times than I want to admit to you. So you know that's it's more awesome. than twice.
2: Yeah, I've I've uh really enjoyed working with Eugene and it's always a treat to hear what he comes up with.
0: And also, um you're doing show called uh Care Don't Care with uh Eugene, which is really funny, where uh basically they're gonna tell you the card that's coming up and they're going to make their picks give a little bit of analysis and talk about which fights they care about, which they don't care about, and how you move from don't care to care. Am I correct? Is that accurate?
2: That is that is correct. And we're both, you know, basically fifty year olds who've been into MMA hardcore since the first UFCs. And at this point in our lives we're both busy with a lot of other stuff. So, you know, I mean I'm the founding editor of Bloody Elbow and I still manage the site every day but I don't have time and day to do research on all the young bloods and watch all the fights and review and, you know, do the stuff like I used to do for fight previews. So we're trying to simulate what it's like to be knowledgeable, but casual fans who are coming into it cold and just, you know, here's the name and not, ref- you know, we're not looking at Wikipedia. We're not refreshing ourselves. Just like, do I care? Do I remember these people? Who are these guys again? Cause there's just been so many fights over the last few years in the UFC that, that, it's crazy to expect everybody to be, you know, Zayn Simon or Connor Rubish that are like obsessed and experts and, you know, it's like very difficult to keep up with. So we're just trying to give our take on, like, which people are breaking through and and breaking (laughs) through our very cynical, jaded minds, you know? And then just uh, shooting the shit.
0: (laughs) It's so hilarious when you guys are like, uh, maybe I'm kind of moving towards care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because we
2: are addicts, and we do watch all the fights, you know? And uh, so, you know, we do care. (laughs) But, we, you know, going into it, we didn't... We're not always excited about all the fights, so we try to communicate that.
0: And have I hit all of them? So, Dad Rock being the new one, but it's basically those other two podcasts and this one. Have I missed any?
2: Those are the the podcasts, uh, yeah, that I'm on, uh, If I Did It and and, uh, Care, Don't Care.
0: And I want to say to the audience, there's another network I listened to for years, and I am kicking myself that I didn't really, really dive deep into these Bloody Elbow shows. Three Amigos... Uh, with Ian Kidd and Steffi Haynes and Mookie Alexander is phenomenal, along with the other shows that I mentioned. You can find Kidnate at Kidnate uh, on Twitter, if I'm correct. Yes,
2: that's correct. Yes, yes. And, and uh, uh, MMANation.com from- on YouTube, and okay. MMANation on iTunes, and Bloody Elbow.com on there the you
0: web. Go. You have hit it all. He's he's you're you're everywhere, Nate. You're you're not leaving any space for for me to move into. So. I'm the multimedia
2: machine. What can I say?
0: All right, the Howard Stern of uh, MMA media. <laughs> and, uh, thank you very much for your time, Nate. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks
2: for being it on. It's really much, fun.
0: We need to do it again, okay? Absolutely. All right, kidnativebloodyelbow.com, and uh, folks, we're taking you out to. Um, Uh, Domino from uh, Van Morrison since he mentioned Van Morrison but um, I really appreciate his time he has um, so many things that he's doing relative to MMA media and everything I really greatly appreciate uh, Nate's time so uh, we'll bring you more life episodes and we're also going to bring you I'll probably have him on to talk MMA etc but I think he enjoyed himself so um I thank you all, and as always, being the curious person that I am, I always wonder what's up around the bend. dealing with the subject matter you want to hear about. So thank you, everybody, once
1: again.